0: Do you ever wake up in the morning and realize that um, you have a lot of things to do in the morning and your mind starts running with everything you need to be doing once you leave your house in the morning? You have this conversation that you need to have. You have this task that you need to be done with yesterday. You have all of these things in front of you that that are are queued up, they're they're just there. And and, um, you're thinking, I've got a lot to do. There's a lot of people who are dependent on me. I'm dependent upon a lot of other people, I need all these inputs, I need to give inputs to people, and yet you're sitting there and your Bible is right in front of you, and it's a fight to get yourself in the right frame of mind to get moving that day. What I want to share is some things that that I do to help me get past that situation in my life. Um, I have the same issue that everybody else does. I've got things that I need to be doing in another hour or two from when I get up, and things that need to be in place and things that need to be working. And my experience has been that it it can be very, very difficult to focus my attention on the Word and have a meaningful interaction with God over His Word um, when I'm thinking about the things that are coming. And those things are real and they're coming and and they have real issues and real consequences and they carry real weight. So what I want to share with you guys this morning is what I do to help myself uh, suspend all of those thoughts and focus my thoughts where they need to be for the time being. Um, I sit down, I've got my Bible open in front of me, and uh, I know that I need to remember, first and foremost, why it is that I'm reading my Bible. And so what I want to share with you this morning is what I tell myself about why I read my Bible. This is something that the other elders do as well. Um, I sit down and I remind myself that God has chosen to communicate. Our God is a communicating God, and he communicates himself in two ways, through creation and through his word. And it's really, really helpful for me to stop and remember that that when I consider God's majesty and God's splendor and God's power, all those things are displayed for me in creation. But they're also explained much more clearly and much more deeply in God's word. But God also displays in his word his justice and his vengeance and his love and his mercy and his kindness in his word. His word is where I find that. His Word is where I find God's design for salvation, where I find God's explanation of who he is. So it's very helpful for me just to remember and remind myself, you know, the reason why I'm reading God's Word is because that is where God has chosen to reveal himself in the most complete, most clear detail. And that really helps me remember, okay, I need to set aside everything else. This is God's revelation to me. And then I remind myself, and it's very helpful for me to realize that God's word also is where God gives me the most clear picture of myself that I'll find anywhere. (coughs) The the clearest picture I'll find of myself is is not the explanation that my wife gives of me. It's not the explanation that my kids give of me or that my parents gave of me a few decades ago. The clearest description of who I really am that I can understand is in God's word. God tells me exactly the condition I was in when I was born. My fallenness, my brokenness before God, and it reminds me of the kind of person I was Um, before God saved me, because it's so easy when I've got this list of things coming in the day to to forget who it was that I was before God saved me, and why it is that I should be so thankful for who I am uh, in Christ and what Christ has done. And so God's Word tells me who I am Uh, today, it tells me who I was, and God's Word tells me how it is that I came to be who I am. And what I'm going to be reading today is part of God's design for how he saves sinners, and so all of this frames my, my thinking and my, my understanding of what it is that God has done to, to save me. And that's why it is that I'm reading God's Word, because I want to understand who God is rightly. I want to understand who I was rightly, and who I am today, and what it is that, that God has done for me. And that helps me understand that, that I need this time in God's Word. I really need this time. I'm not simply reading an article. I'm not reading a journal. I'm not reading a scientific article of any kind. I'm reading God's explanation of himself to me. When I can get that straight and when I stop and I ponder that for a minute, that actually does a lot for me to help me focus and remember why I'm there that, that time. When I step aside from that and I forget to do that or I, I find myself in too much of a hurry or I justify some other reason, um, reading God's Word becomes more of a task for me. and it, it becomes about reading a certain number of verses or a certain number of chapters or a certain number of pages. And it's just a lot less meaningful for me when I, I forget what it is that, that I'm reading and why it is that God gave this to us. So um, that is what I do um, in the morning when I, I get up and I've got lots of things in front of me, and it's really easy to be thinking about the next thing that's coming. Uh, actually, the most important things in my day are going to be, every day, the time that I meet with the Lord, and everything will flow out of that. Um, so if I can remember that my time alone with the Lord is, is framed by the reading of His Word, communicating back to the Lord what I read um, in prayer and thanksgiving. um, That's really, really helpful for me. So I hope that's helpful to you guys. If you're a guy who gets up and you often have lots and lots of things waiting for you by 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock or maybe even earlier than that, 7 o'clock, and it's easy to think about those things and dwell on those things, um, hopefully just remembering that Scripture is where God reveals Himself. God reveals the, the believer's former condition. God reveals the believer's current condition. God reveals the, the mechanism that he used to save the believer and how right and good it is for us to read those things and keep those things in front of us every day. Um, that is what makes my time meaningful, and I, I hope that's helpful to you guys. Um, so, so remember that and keep that in front of you. Um, just ask yourself when you sit down in the morning why it is that you're reading God's Word. If you read in the evening, tell yourself, this is why I'm reading God's Word. Um, This is going to help me think rightly about all of the situations that I experienced that day, uh, when I see them in light of who God is, when I see them in light of who I used to be and who I am now, and how I should think about these things and how I should dwell on these things based on who I am today. So uh, when you sit down with God's word, never forget um, why it is that you read God's word. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much again for the opportunity to look into your word and see what you have in store for the believer to see what is in front of them, and to see how it is that you're going to bring that about. Lord, your provision, your design, is a magnificent design. It's a better design than we could ever come up with ourselves, or it's a more sure design. It's one that's designed by you, purposed by you for your purpose. I pray for myself, and I pray for all of us in here today, that you would strengthen us in our understanding of who you are, Lord, so that we would live lives that are more pleasing to you. We would see you for who you are. We would see ourselves for what you've done in us. Lord, I pray that you would do this. I pray that you would do it for your glory. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. amen. All right. Okay, so um, if you have the outline, get that out. If you have the blue pamphlet, get that out. And we will move through this. So we'll just do a quick review from what we did last time. What we went through last time, we talked about the unregenerate man and that he is in an unmixed sinful condition. And he was in that condition from birth, and he is apart from Christ. And one of the key verses in Scripture that will help us understand that is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So it was a very active lifestyle. It was an active participation. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, You worked according to the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. Um, That's the unregenerate man. He's in an unmixed sinful condition. He is set apart from Christ from birth. We talked about the regeneration event. It's a one-time event that's accomplished by God in the gospel. Um, The very next verses in Ephesians help us understand this, what God does to save. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 say, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. So if you look at the the subject and the verb, the subject is in verse 4, the verb is in verse 5. God made us alive together with Christ. So regeneration is something that God does. And there are components to that. There are one-time events accomplished by God. Those are listed here in the center section. You can see those. And then there are also benefits to those. Um, You see those at the bottom, I guess. And those are things that are true about the believer. There are irreversible conditions that are true about the believer. And then what we'll talk about is the regenerate man and that he's in a mixed condition that residual sin coexists with his regeneration. Um, we talked about this in my discussion group. Um, what I want to point out is Romans 5.5 tells us that God uses his Holy Spirit at the point of regeneration to pour into us his love. The Holy Spirit is the means, it's the conduit by which God pours his love into us every regeneration. Um, but this person has on one hand, they have God's love within them, and on the other hand, they, they are living in this body that we live in today. It's the same body that we had uh, since we've been born. Paul writes, the flesh sets its to desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And These are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. There is a tension that a believer finds himself in as sin faces them in the world today. Uh, there is a tension. Um, the evidence that there is a tension, that there is a fight, is the proof that there is a believer, that the person is a believer, and that's really, really encouraging. Um, so if you're a person like me who fights with sin and engages with sin, be encouraged that that's the evidence that God has actually saved you. God has done a work in your life that is irreversible, and um, it's a work that, that makes you completely different from who you used to be. So that's really encouraging. What we're going to do today is we're going to start with a discussion of the heavenly man, which is on the third section of our pamphlet, and we're going to talk about um, the truth that's in there, and then we're going to talk after that about how it is that a person transitions into that state. And so as you look at your pamphlet, you see the heavenly man over there on the third uh, the third section, but then you see three events at the bottom. We're gonna talk about those at the end. We're gonna talk about the death event, we're gonna talk about the rapture, and we're gonna talk about the resurrection. If you look up at the top of the, the third section, you see that um, the death event um, separates the regenerate man from the heavenly man, the rapture and the resurrection um, our descriptions that come afterwards for that. So we'll get to those as well. All right? So that's where we are. So the context here is that there is a believer, and that believer is in eternity with God. And so what we're going to do is I'd like you all to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 50 to 57 here. And Paul is writing to help the church in Corinth understand what is coming in the next life to come. The setting is that the church of Corinth was a church that was Um, located amidst very sinful people, very sinful influences. Paul wanted to make sure that they had a right understanding of what was taking place in eternity, what would take place in eternity. And so Paul writes, and he makes some very clear declarations about what will happen for the believer. He says, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable uh, inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Of death, where is your victory? Of death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's two key words we want to look here and see in this passage and investigate what they mean, and those are imperishable and immortal. As you see, the imperishable being described in verse 52 and the immortal being described in verse 54 and 55. Uh, verse 54 imperishable here relates to an inability or incapability of being corrupted or spoiled something that cannot be corrupted or spoiled and the good example that we think of here that's very familiar to us is food we say food is perishable if it can spoil Um, when we talk about the believer being imperishable the believer is beyond the reach of corrupting sin So when Paul is writing here to the church in Corinth about the dead being raised imperishable, he's talking about people, he's talking about believers who will be beyond the reach of sin that corrupts. Sin will not be able to reach into the life of that person. Verse 52b, the dead will be raised imperishable. The beginning of verse 53, the perishable must put on the imperishable. And then in verse 54 at the beginning, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable. So Paul is talking about a transformation that's taking place from a person who is within the reach of sin here in this life to the next life in the next age when they are beyond the polluting, the corrupting influences of sin. So that's what the imperishable relates to. Um, This person cannot be corrupted. This person cannot be flawed by sin. Um, Sin's penalty was removed at the cross. Sin's power was removed at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in that person's (coughs) new life. But now here, what is happening is sin's presence is removed in eternity. So you have the idea of sin's penalty being removed at the cross when Jesus died for that person. Sin's power is dethroned when the person is regenerated. But as the person becomes an imperishable person, sin's presence is removed. So there's three Ps. One P is penalty at the cross that's taken care of. Power at resurrection that's taken care of when the person is... is, um, has new life in Christ, and a third is presence. Sin's presence is removed in eternity. So we wanna keep that in front of us. The other idea that Paul is, is leaning on pretty heavily here is the idea of being immortal. And what that really is, is just beyond the reach of death. So whereas perishable talks about being beyond the reach of sin, immortality speaks of being beyond the reach of death. And Paul says in verse 54, the mortal must put on immortality. So in order to enter the heavenly state, Um, The person is beyond the reach of death. You're going to put on a condition in which death has no reach, death has no access to that person. So in verse 56, we read that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. What this is telling us is that death has power over a person only when sin is present. And there is no place for death when uh, sin is no longer present. So because the person is imperishable and beyond the reach of sin, uh, they are also beyond the reach of death. So that's really encouraging for the believer. So what we want to look at here are some things in the chart that help us understand um, what characterizes the man who is in that heavenly condition. We know he's imperishable. We know he's immortal. But there are some things from Scripture that will help us understand this a little bit more. We see in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that the, the, the person is actually at home with the Lord. There's actually a change of location. They're home with the Lord. Paul says, We are of good courage in 2 Corinthians 5.8. I say... And we prefer, rather, to be absent from the body in this world and to be at home with the Lord. The message there is that heaven is the permanent home of the Christian. It's the place where he is at rest. It's the place where he is at his final location. And the way that the believer should view this world is that there is no true rest, there is no final rest here. Our final rest is going to be in heaven. So there's the idea of the believer being at home with the Lord. There's also the idea that the believer will resemble Jesus. 1 John 3, 2. We want to be careful how we read this. Um, There's some good truth here for us, though. John is writing to a a group of believers, and he's writing to them to help them understand what characterizes um, a believer. And part of what characterizes them is what they will be like in the next life, in the next age. And he says in chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are now children of God. And it has not appeared yet as what we will be. We know that when he, Jesus, appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And when you see the words here, we will be like him, uh, we don't want to make the mistake that other belief systems in this world make, and that is that they conclude that that tells us that we will be like Jesus and that we will have some form of deity in ourselves. That is not what John is telling his readers. What he's telling them is that we're going to be like Jesus in the sense that we're going to be immortal. (coughs) We're going to be free from the reach of death and we're going to be imperishable, and we're going to be free from the reach of sin. And so that is true about Christ, and that will be true about the believer in the eternal state. So they'll resemble Christ in that way. The other thing that's true about the believer is that they will be seen for who they truly are in Christ. Um, today, when the world looks at the believer, they, they not, can't necessarily tell the distinction between the person who's a believer and the person who's not. Um, if you work in a place where there's lots and lots of people, um, hopefully your your testimony of your life bears evidence of who you are. Um, but just as looking at you, the, the world can't necessarily tell, just at first glance. But if we read Colossians chapter 3, um, verse 4, God tells us something that's actually very helpful. He says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is a reference to the day of the Lord when Christ is coming back. He is coming back to establish his rule and his reign on earth for a thousand years. And his saints will be with him. And they will be seen exactly in the condition that they are. The condition that is free from the reach of death. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 tells us that at that time, when the saints are accompanying Christ to his return to this earth to establish his rule and reign on this earth, For a thousand years, they will be clothed in white linen. The reason I mention that is because they are heading down to the Battle of Armageddon. And they're heading to a battle against all the forces of this world that are arrayed with all of their capabilities, all their weaponry, and they're wearing white linen. They're not wearing army fatigues. They're not equipped with radios and communication devices. They're not equipped with guns and everything else. They're equipped with white linen. And that indicates that they're beyond the reach of death. They will live forever. They don't need protection from anything that would harm them uh, because they're beyond the reach of death. Um, Scott? Yeah. Could, um, so how, how do you define revealed in verse 4? You also will be revealed within verse mm-hmm. so. Seen. Is that like the day of judgment? No, it's not. The, it's, it's the day of the Lord when Jesus comes to establish his rule and his reign on this earth, and the believer who is going to reign on this earth and rule with Jesus for a thousand years and be here with him for the thousand years will be accompanying Jesus on the, on the return back to earth this is after the tribulation and this is um, after the rapture and the believer will be with Christ down on earth in their immortal condition and the world will see them as immortal beings who are not subject to death death can't reach them and can't touch them so they'll be seen. I think the idea there is to be seen and recognized, and noticed and observed as being in a condition that's different than the ones who are observing them. So they'll be recognized. Like I mean, that'll be obvious. Obvious. Yeah. Uh, they won't be dying like the the unbeliever who lives during that time will be dying. They'll live forever. You say, when were you born? Uh, I was born a long time ago. <laughs> So they'll be seen for who they are in Christ. Something else that's true about them is that they'll be blameless and full of joy. Jude 24. This is really encouraging. Jude is is writing and he's talking about um, a situation that will take place in the future about when the believer is in the presence of Christ. And this is the way they'll be seen in the presence of Christ. Jude says, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Today the believer is without blame to be sure. Um, this is talking about standing in the presence of God where it is affirmed and confirmed that you're blameless and the joy will be great. It will be greater than today because you see the reality of what has been accomplished for you and you see eternity in front of you. Um, they're blameless and they're in that state because Christ took the blame of the cross, an event that happened for us 2,000 years ago, but they become aware of the, the effect of that. They see the, the fruit of that. Um, going forward so the joy is going to be magnified and that's pretty exciting also there's there's no death or sadness every one of us knows that there's some realities in life and death is one of those realities and uh, we are told in revelation chapter 21 verse 4 that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death there will no longer be mourning or crying or pain the first things have passed away And again, there's going to be no death, and that's because sin's presence has been removed. There's going to be no sadness, because with the removal of sin, the Christian's only experience will be to enjoy their Savior and to serve their Savior for eternity, without growing weary, without growing tired, without growing sick. Um, If you're tired and sick, you still have to go to work today on this earth, and it's hard, and you have to do that. Um, But in heaven, you're not going to be tired, you're not going to be sick, and you're going to be working, serving your Savior Eternity, so there won't be any sadness. There won't be any death. There will also be no curse, and there will be no night. And this is not just a factoid. This is this is pretty impressive. Uh, Revelation 22 verses 3 and 5 tell us there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. That's the river of life, and His bond servants will serve Him. And verse 5 says there will no longer be any night. There's no longer any curse. Uh, Everything that you see today is in some degree under the curse. Work is cursed. Childbirth is cursed. There are a lot of things that are cursed in this world. Uh, There will no longer be a curse. And the reason for that is because the occasion of the curse, the sin, has been removed. And uh, there's going to be no night. And this is really significant. This is not just a cool factoid. This is true. There's no night because the Christian is in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. And his glory is going to be permanently and continuously on display. So the believer will never see night. They will never see darkness. They will they will never be able to not see things as they really are. And that's because Christ is on display and his glory is illuminating the whole place. So that's exciting. Um, and when you think about that, uh, Scripture tells us that the, the dimensions of the new heaven are 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. And Jesus' glory is illuminating a 1,500-mile cube. And that's pretty exciting. That's a lot of glory. So these are the, the, um, the key descriptions of the believer in, in heaven. The heavenly man is in an unmixed condition. There is no sin within him at all. He's unable to sin because the occasion of sin has been removed. Sin's presence has been removed. He's unable to displease God because he is in the imperishable condition. Um, there's no fight within him against sin because sin is not present. Now that is encouraging. I look forward to that in my own life. I hope you men do as well. Um, He's perfectly enslaved to God. Perfectly enslaved to God meaning there is no drudgery. There is no boredom. There is no looking for relief here. Uh, This is a very, very satisfying enslavement. It's a joyful, joyful service to the Lord. Uh, There's going to be no need to shepherd your heart. Uh, Today the believer needs to shepherd their heart. with truth from God's word Uh, against the onslaught of messages that that confront us every day, every hour. There's going to be no need to do that because those messages won't be present uh, because there will be no sin in that condition. And they're going to be totally enveloped, totally encapsulated by God's joy. Um, And so that is a really, really, really good condition to be in. Um, I look forward to that. Um, Something that should encourage us every day in our our fight and our pursuit of holiness and sanctification is where we're going to be and what it's going to be like um, when we get there. Whether that's 10 years from now for you or 80 years from now for you or whatever it is, um, that should motivate and encourage the believer and fill them with gratitude every day of their life. So the question is, how do you get there from this condition? How does the regenerate man get to be the heavenly man? And so we're going to talk about that next. But before we do, we we want to know that Jesus actually wants us to be there. I'm going to read a verse from the High Priestly Prayer in John chapter 17, and we'll see that it's Jesus' strong heart desire that we actually be in that condition, we actually be in that state. He's praying. He's, he's prayed for himself first. This is right before his crucifixion. Jesus has prayed for himself, and then he's prayed for his disciples, and now he's praying for all of the believers who will come after the disciples. He's praying for the church at the end of the chapter. And if you have a red letter version, this is one of those those chapters where there's a couple of words at the beginning that are in black and then everything's in red letter at the end because Jesus speaks the whole thing. And at the end of his prayer, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, that would be the church and the believers that are to come, whom you have given me, I desire that they be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus desires... He has a strong desire that the believer actually leave this state, leave this condition, and move to the next condition so that he can see Christ's glory. He can see Jesus for who he really, really is. We lose a little bit of perspective on that because we never saw Jesus as a man. We never saw his miracles. We never heard his teachings. um, We never saw him as a man. He was probably the same size as us, the same height and weight and everything else. but we get to look forward to the condition that Jesus is actually the king. He's not only the Messiah, but he's the king, he's the creator, he's the ruler, and we get to see him in his full glory where he is. And Jesus wants us to see that. The reason why he wants us to see that is so that we can be full of astounding joy and amazement for the rest of eternity. So as we think about this, we want to remember that Christ actually wants us to be there. (coughs) He wants us to be there. This isn't just what's waiting for us. This is something that God wants for us, Jesus wants for us. So we're going to look at the three um, events, the three events that are used by God to usher the man from the present state into the next state. So we're going to look first at death, and then we're going to look at the rapture, and then we're going to look at the resurrection. Um, So we know what physical death is. Um, What we have here is a description that says death is departing the land of the dying and going home. Departing the land of the dying. We're here, and we're, we're in the land of the dying. Every one of us knows that death is on its way. Um, if you have older parents, um, you know that death is clearly on its way for them. I'm, I'm experiencing that in my own life. I can see that death is on its way. Um, but the believer is going home. It's the act of actually going home. And so I'm going to read some verses that help us understand this. Um, what we want to get in front of us here is the idea of disintegration. Integration means two things that are together. Disintegration means things that are separated. And disintegration here is the inner man being separated from the outer man. The outer man is his body, his earthly tent. The inner man is his soul, who he is before God. 2 Corinthians 5, and verses 1 and 8 talk about this. Um, actually, the whole passage in the first 8 or 10 verses of 2 Corinthians 5 tell us this, but we'll look at verses 1 and 8. Um, We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And we are of good courage, and we prefer to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. So here on earth, the inner man and the outer man are integrated. They're together. My soul and my body are in the same frame. They're in the same package. Um, But what we're talking about here is that Paul is saying that they're going to be absent from the body the death experience separates the body from the soul so there's a disintegration that's taking place but what's important to remember is that even as death separates the two, the soul continues to live on even as the body is dead because he says we're going to be absent from the body prefer to be absent speaks of the person's soul having a preference, He's, he's preferring the case where his soul is actually absent from the body and at home with the Lord Okay, so death is an experience which also, in, in which a person has a safe journey home. Death should be an experience that the believer looks forward to with anticipation and joy rather than fright or fear. Paul says, uh, these are some of the last words that he's speaking. He's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy. This is his last letter. He's writing and he says, um, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and he will. Bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. So what is Paul confident about here? He's confident that God will bring him safely home. He knows with certainty that death will usher him from this life into the next life, into God's kingdom. He believes that. He knows that there's no doubt in his mind. So he looks at it with confidence. That death is the, the triggering event that ushers a man safely into heaven, his passage into heaven. Okay. And for the believer, death is a, a wonderful experience. It should be a very, very wonderful experience for them personally. Not necessarily for those around them. There's going to be a mixture of joy and sadness. But for the believer himself, that's an experience of joy. I want to know that in the death condition, in the, in the dead condition, the believer is still alive. So we're going to turn to John chapter 11. Let's turn there. And we're going to see Jesus and his conversation about Lazarus. Jesus is talking to Martha, and Martha knows that her dead brother Lazarus will rise again at the resurrection. She knows that. She knows that there's coming a time way down the road when he will be resurrected into an eternal state. And she believes, she believes in that with everything in her, but she sees him as her dead brother right now. And Jesus says to her in John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So the soul of the Christian who has died is alive and it is well. It's alive and well even though their body is separated from their soul. It's also a a state of mind that's called, or a state of being that's called sleep. There's a couple of different places in the New Testament where the death experience is referred to as sleep. And one of them is with the church in Thessalonica, and another one of them is um, when you read about in 1 Corinthians, you read about the church in Corinth and how they weren't using the Lord's table properly. And some of them, because of their disobedience in the way they used the Lord's table, had fallen asleep. They weren't sleeping in communion time. They were actually dead. And Paul refers to it as, that as believers having fallen asleep. But we'll take a look at 1 Thess 4, verse 13. And there's young believers in the church in Thessalonica. Paul only spent about a month with them, I think three Sabbaths, thereabouts. So he was there less than a month, and he actually founded a church. A church rose up and was formed in Thessalonica. This is on Paul's second missionary journey, and he was only there for a month, so they didn't have a lot of time to get a lot of spiritual foundation underneath them. And Paul had to leave because of persecution, but this church was left behind, and they had a lot of questions. So their theological understanding was not particularly deep, so Paul writes to them to, to help them understand some things. And um, They knew that um, they had Christ as new believers in this life, but they wanted to know how they could still have Christ after they died. And Paul answers them, and he says that even as you continue to exist, you will always have Christ. Um, He says, "We we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. So Paul is referring to them as asleep. He's referring to those who've died, those who've gone to be with Christ. And it's not a physical death. He's saying in the same way that a sleeping person continues to exist through the night, um, and he's passed from consciousness into sleep, so the dead saint has passed from this life um, into the next life. So in the same way that when we go to bed at night and we fall asleep, and we pass from consciousness to unconsciousness, whatever that is medically, um, the saint passes from this life to the next life. And sleep is a really good analogy. Because you're still alive, you're just passing into another state couple other things. What we want to say, point out here is that the condition that the believer will be in in heaven in death is that it's a, it's actually a gain for the believer. This is what should be really encouraging to the believer. Death is not a loss for the believer. Death is actually a gain. And Paul says this when he's writing to the church in Philippi. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21 um, What Paul is saying there is a number of things, but he's saying that you know any experience that he could have here in life any amount of wealth any amount of prosperity any amount of well-being here it's actually much much less than the experience of death itself the death experience itself is gain regardless of what your position is here in life so death is gain for the believer so think that way about death when it's coming so there's a summary here and death removes the christian from this world death extricates the believer from his mixed condition it, it pulls him out of his mixed condition And death ushers the Christian soul permanently into the presence of God. Permanently. Not temporarily, but permanently. So that's the experience of death. That happens at the end of our earthly life here. And praise God for every day he gives us, but that's what happens to the believer the moment they breathe their last here on this earth. We're going to talk about the rapture as well. The rapture is a translation or a transformation of the living person into the resurrected body. And when we talk about the rapture, we're talking about an event that happens for those saints who are alive when Jesus returns to take the church to be with him. This is something that I think we want to be very, very clear about. When Jesus returns, there are going to be believers who are on this earth. Jesus takes those believers to be with him. They actually bypass death to be with Jesus. We're going to see that, and I think we should turn in our Bibles to 1 uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Paul is describing the condition in which Jesus will return and he will return to take the church to be with him. And we want to see what is happening. Paul says in 1 Thess 4, 16 and 17, the Lord himself, that's Jesus, will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul first addresses those Christians who have died, and like we just addressed in the last section, those Christians who have died before Christ's return. He said, Those will rise first. But then he addresses in verse 17 the believer who is actually alive at the term that at the time that Christ comes to take his church to be with him, to rapture the church away. He says, Then we who are alive, he says, We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. So the living saints who are alive at the time of Christ's return, they observe the resurrection of the dead saints. They observe that and they see that. That should be really encouraging. And then right after that, they experience a transformation in themselves (laughs) as they're joined together with those saints, having the same constitution of those saints as those saints directly from their earthly bodies that they have here that's the the rapture. It's an instantaneous, instantaneous event that takes place as they observe this. And note the encouragement the Christian is to take in this. The believer is to be very, very encouraged by this. The last verse in this passage is a really, really important verse. A lot of people study really hard verses 14 through 17. Okay, when's the rapture happening? What is all going to take place? And it's really, really good to do that. The takeaway from this is in verse 18. Verse 18 says, Therefore comfort one another with these words. That tells you that whatever your circumstances are in this life, they may be very, very challenging, and by God's grace you're persevering. Um, an end to this is coming, um, where the believer will either die and be resurrected from the dead to be with Christ, or they'll be alive at the time of Christ's return, and they will be transformed, they will be taken from this present condition into their eternal conditions. And that should be really, really, really encouraging to the believer. So whatever your challenging situations are, whether they're health or whether they're financial, whether they're work, whether they're relational, whatever they are, um, the believer is to be encouraged by the fact that this is coming to an end and a a transformation is coming to take place. So that should be really, really encouraging to the believer. 1 Corinthians 15, met. Do you think there's any significance in, in the order of that process that Paul is mentioning? Yeah, so the question is, is there any significance in the order, in the order being that the, the dead raise first and then the alive? Yeah, I think it's to put on display and to encourage the, the present believer that, that Jesus really is the Savior, that he really is the Lord. They get the chance to witness and experience the resurrection of those who are dead, that are raised from the dead into an eternal state. They get the chance to see that. And then immediately following that, they join them in that condition. That just creates more joy. That creates more confidence in the Savior and in the Messiah. I'm mean, At the end of the day, they're both in the same condition with Christ, but I think there's an advantage to the believer who observes, who's alive and observes the resurrection from the dead. What an amazing experience to see people who've been dead for thousands of years, Old Testament saints, New Testament believers, church-age believers being raised from the dead together in the same condition, people from... Tribes and nations and tongues all over the world being raised together. I think that would be really, really encouraging to the saint who believed. Um, it's going to be pretty hard for believers in that day. Things are going to be harder for them then than they are for us today probably. And what an encouragement to see that happen. So, That's my take on that anyway. Um, just encouragement for the believer. Um, okay, there's a instantaneous physical transformation that takes place. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 51 and 52. Um, This gives us a little bit more detail on exactly how that takes place, exactly how that transformation takes place. And again, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth needs some really good teaching about what's going to take place at the end of this age because of all the lies that are around them, all the other belief systems that are around them. And Paul writes to them in verses 51 and 52. He says, Behold, in other words, you've got to get this. You have to get this. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, so it's going to be instantaneous. At the last trumpet, that's the same trumpet that's mentioned in first Thess 4, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Paul is writing about believers who are alive. He's saying we because at that time those believers are alive, um, but he's saying that any believer who is alive will be changed. It's going to be an instantaneous change. It's going to be changed to be an imperishable person. It's going to be a glorious person. It's going to be a person with power. It's going to be a person who's in a spiritual condition that's different from their current spiritual condition. They will have the same characteristics as the heavenly host who've always been there. Um, They will have the ability to live forever. They will be free from sin. They will be able to worship God with complete integrity and and sincerity. Um, It's going to be wonderful. Okay. So that is the rapture event. It is the experience in which the believers who are alive are taken to be with Christ from their their present condition. All right, then we're going to look at the resurrection. This is the integration of the perfect inner man and the glorified body. Remember, death was the disintegration. It's where the soul is separated from the body. Uh, The resurrection is the reintegration. It's where the, the soul that has always been alive and continues to be alive and will continue to be alive, is joined together with a resurrection body. It's the raising of the dead body into the resurrected body, and this is the experience of every believer who has died before the return of Christ, whether it's this generation or the generation before us or the generation after us, if Christ has not yet come yet. This is the the description. So we're going to stay in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at verses 42 to 48. And we're going to talk about, we're going to take a a look at the transition that's taking place here. As we read this, we want to take notice of the things that, that is taking place, the changes that are taking place in the person. So Paul says, starting in 42, So also is the resurrection from the dead. It is sown a perishable body. That's our earthly body when we're born. It is raised an imperishable body. So after the resurrection, it's an imperishable body again, beyond the corrupting influences of sin. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. See the contrast there? These bodies we have today are are no match for the glorious bodies that we will have um, in the next age. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Raise your hand if you experience weakness, right? (laughs) It is raised in power, right? There will be no weaknesses. Aging isn't taking place. None of that is taking place. No gray hair. No loss of hair. Really, really good. <laughs> really, really good. Okay? It is sown a natural body. Okay? When we're born, we're born um, inheriting the sin nature that our mom and our dad, our physical mom and dad gave us, that they inherited from their ancestors. Um, so it is sown a natural body. Where is it that? Um, There is also a spiritual body. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. The spiritual is not the first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth. He's earthy. The second man is from heaven. He's heavenly. The first man is from the earth. Um, Just read that. As it is earthly, so also are those who are earthy. As it is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we also will bear the image of the heavenly. So we've got to get this. We're going to be raised imperishable. The new body is untarnished in sin. We're going to be raised in glory. We're going to be raised in power. We're going to be raised in a spiritual body. We never possess a body ever again that's in accordance with this human nature. That's really, really exciting. Um, as we mentioned, the dead and raised first and then the raptured saints. We see that in 1 Thess 4.15. Um, the resurrection of the saints who are dead occurs before the transformation of the living saints. Again, the idea there is that that God is going to put his power on display to everybody, especially to the believers who are faithful. They will see this and they will know this and they'll be encouraged by that. So what I want to do is um, share a couple of observations about this that I, I hope are helpful to you men. The first observation is that in Christ you are not in the unmixed sinful condition you were in when you were born that you are in until the point of conversion. If you're a believer, uh, you are no longer in the condition that you you were born in. Um, That person has passed away. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, The new has come, the old has gone away. You can never be in that condition again. You're a new creature that's different from who you used to be. So keep that in mind all the time. That if you're a believer today, you are in a condition that is different from the condition you were born in, and you can never go back to that condition. And the fact that you still sin does not mean that you've slipped back into that unmixed sinful sinful condition. When the believer sins today, it doesn't mean they're slipping back into the condition they were in, that they were born into. It means that they're sinning as a believer. So, so don't conclude that, oh, because I had a bad day, uh, my salvation is gone. I've slipped back away from who God made me into and who I was when I was born. Don't conclude that. That's not a biblical conclusion about yourself, even though it's sin. But secondly, remember that you're not yet in the ultimate unmixed condition with Christ. And a condition is coming that's very, very different from what we're in today. Very, very different. Um and not yet being in that condition is as much the design of God as it is that you can never go back to the former condition. Here's the condition that you're in today. You're in this condition as a believer. On one hand, you can't go back to your former condition that you were locked in and dead in your transgressions and sin. And in this earth, you can't advance to the next condition that we will be in when we reach heaven. What it should do is it should grow us for our yearning for that time. It should grow us for our desire for holiness in that time. Um, so we're in a better condition that we were in before, salvation, but not as good as the condition that you'll have one day, not nearly as good. So temper your thoughts about this condition that you're in today and what, and what we have and, and regulate them with what it will be like as a believer. Be satisfied with, with who we are in Christ at that time. Um, so there's, there's two perspectives on the Christian life that I want us to make sure we understand here. One is the position of the believer And the second is the practice of the believer. The position of the believer is perfect before God. It's perfect. Because of the work that Christ did, God views a person as being justified before Him. The blood of Jesus washed a person clean. That's their position before God. God has declared that person righteous because of their faith in Jesus Christ and the work He did on their behalf at the cross. But their practice is progressing, they have new desires to obey Christ. But the indwelling sin is still there. Um, If you want proof of that, just look at yourself as a believer if you've been a believer for any length of time. Look at yourself as a believer a year after conversion and notice the the state of your sanctification. Then look at yourself as a believer five years after conversion and notice the progress. Notice the the sinful practices that got set aside. Then look at yourself more recently and be encouraged by that and continue to be encouraged by that and pursue ongoing sanctification. So hold two things in view at, one, at the same time. One is that, that you have a position before God where he declares you righteous. But the other is that you're in a, a position of your practice is progressing towards increasing righteousness. And God will help you to become perfectly righteous in his sight on the day that he takes you to be with him. So that makes you a mixed creature with a conflict within yourself. And if you're like me, you feel that tension every day. You feel that tension every day. But use the truth of who you will be in eternity and who you are today, what God has done for you and what he will do for you to encourage yourself and motivate yourself and equip yourself to fight against sin in this world. So the conclusion here is that with all of this stuff that's true about ourselves in the present condition and the condition that's come, God has saved the Christian into a mixed condition. He has. He saved the Christian into a condition where they have affections for the Lord, but there's still residual sin in their life. But this conviction requires and it demands the strength and the grace for the days ahead. Um, that's why the Christian needs to utilize their Bibles as the tool that God has given them to equip themselves for life in this age. Um, we live in a fallen world. We have our bodies that our heart will deceive us, Jeremiah 17. It will deceive us, and we need truth in our life. If you have your Bible with you, if you have your Bible at home, make sure that you are reading your Bible consistently to equip yourself as well as you can be equipped for the rest of the days that God has you on this earth and that the next day and the next day is coming. So once again, just be encouraged by that, but be motivated to, to be faithful and persevere and the reading of God's word and fellowship with him in prayer, and it will serve you well for the rest of the days of your life. Okay? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for your promises. Lord, the age to come is is nothing like we can imagine it. It's much, much better. Lord, we have no idea of what your glory really looks like. We have no idea what eternity really feels like. We really have no idea of what it feels like to not be tired and not be sick. Lord, we know that those days are coming. I pray for my brothers here, my friends. Lord, that you would help every one of us to live a godly life and you would grant us your grace to persevere in this age. Lord, with expectation and joy and anticipation for what you will bring in the next age. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.